Welcome, my darling true crime angels, to WebSleuth's radio podcast. My name is Trisha Griffith, the very proud owner of WebSleuth.com. If I do say so myself, the very best true crime discussion forum on the internet. Okay, 2019, there was a groundbreaking docuseries called Surviving R. Kelly. It was a six-part Emmy-nominated and Critics' Choice Award and MTV Award-winning explosive documentary series, and it was seen by over 26 million people. After decades of allegations against the singer and much outrage after the documentary series aired, the authorities renewed their interest in R. Kelly. Now at 52 years old, R. Kelly is in custody, facing a stack of federal and state charges, including sexual assault, obstruction of justice, and child pornography. Recently, Lifetime aired a follow-up series called Surviving R. Kelly Part 2, The Reckoning. This was a five-part documentary that looked at the toll taken on the women who came forward, and boy, it was powerful and explosive, and all kinds of new details came about that we've learned about R. Kelly's life and his treatment of women. Today, we are very honored to have on Web Sleuths Radio Podcast, Sudi Kosrapur. She is the showrunner and co-executive producer on Surviving R. Kelly Part to The Reckoning. Sudi, welcome to WebSleuth Radio Podcast. We do appreciate you taking out the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, now, let's talk about you personally for a moment before we get into R. Kelly. You have a very, very interesting background in, as a filmmaker and as a psychologist, which the two together, perfect for making this series. So talk a little bit about yourself, please. Well, from a very, very young age, I was always fascinated by the human psyche and by human relationships. And I, my whole life, I didn't quite know which direction to, to take my fascination, whether clinical practice as a psychologist or documentary filmmaking. And I graduated college, went to graduate school, went to NYU, studied clinical psychology, graduated with my degree, but then was at a crossroads. Mm-hmm. I didn't know which way to go. And it occurred to me as I was trying to make my decision that If I was going to go into journalism and documentary filmmaking, that was something I needed to do when I was young and had an enormous amount of energy. Um, And also, I wanted to wait until I was older, wiser, had lived, had more experience before I actually became a psychotherapist. So I'd have a lot more to bring to my clients, a lot more wisdom and understanding. And so I entered the world of uh, television, basically. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to be in television. I'd grown up uh, in love with television and really liked the, uh, the, the wider audience that you can get with television um, than you can with, with documentary feature films. And I was very fortunate early in my career to uh, be able to combine both of my interests in documentary filmmaking. I was one of the first producer-directors of A&E's Intervention, uh, dealing with drug addiction and, uh, and rehabilitation. I also um, did my own series on the, the treatment of severe eating disorders. I did a show about family therapy, show about couples therapy. I also went behind the scenes um, with... Uh, People who've been incarcerated on MSNBC's lockup, I directed that as well. So I found a way to combine both of my my interests into mm-hmm. documentary filmmaking. And of course, Surviving R. Kelly was also a perfect uh, a perfect vehicle for my fascination with 
the human psyche. And Sudi, all of those programs you've mentioned, I watch religiously. So now I have 3,000 more questions for you. Um, can That's I just great. bring it on? Great. Obviously, R. Kelly, with what he has done with women, what he is alleged to have done with women and his behaviors, had to have some kind of messed up childhood. Did you find out anything about his childhood that could explain away his cruelty as an adult to young women? Absolutely. And, and I do have to say, in, in all fairness, it is alleged. Um, just the, the, I, I, did, I did come into this with the mindset of a journalist, um, believing that, you know what, I don't have any proof, I don't have any evidence, all I have is stories, and I have stories on both sides. So I worked very hard to try to get both sides of the story and make sure that that, that I didn't try to tip the scales one way or another, because mm-hmm. R. Kelly, like the rest of us in this country, deserves a fair trial and right. deserves to have an impartial jury. It's hard to get after these two documentaries came out, but he does have a right to that. Um, so I, I, I do want to have that caveat over everything. And yes, we did work very hard um, in the first season as well as the second season to show that our, that, that R. Kelly was the victim of repeated sexual abuse by two different people. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the victim of repeated sexual abuse by an older man in his neighborhood. Um, his family found out about it. His mother found out about it. Unfortunately, she took a payoff to not go to the authorities. Oh, um, they were very poor and uh, a huge family living in one house, and they needed the money. So you can make your own you know, decisions about that. She was in a tough position, but she did take a payoff. Um, but the, I think the most damaging thing that happened to him is that his sister, his older sister, uh, sexually abused him, according to him and according to his two brothers. Mm-hmm. His sister will say allegedly because the sister has not spoken with us, but he and his two brothers have alleged that his sister abused him from age 7, 8 to about 14. Oh, and which is obviously tremendously formative years. Mm-hmm. And when a child is abused like that by someone they trust, they love, who, 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 to, whom, to whom's care they are entrusted, the mm-hmm. sister was, was babysitting them, they feel betrayed. They feel they can't trust anybody in the world. They also feel so emotionally out of control. I mean, just think a little seven, eight-year-old. Their body is completely being used and manipulated by someone bigger and older by them. They feel completely physically, emotionally, psychically out of control. So, of course, psychologically, if this did happen, and again, I always have to preface it with alleged because she has not spoken. Mm -hmm. If this did happen, that would that would explain why he would grow up to become overly controlling of everything in his life whether and and everyone says he's extremely controlling in his professional life he makes sure that his engineers don't talk to the women in his life don't talk to the office staff don't talk to everyone the dancers can't talk to the engineers mm-hmm. to the women to the everyone has to be in separate corners um, there's also, you know, all of the stories about him controlling 
all of his girl, what the girlfriends ate, when they ate. If they misbehaved, he would deny them food. They had to stay in certain rooms. They couldn't come out unless they were given permission. They couldn't go to the bathroom unless they were given permission. There was a bucket in the room if they had to pee. He was, they were asked to use that. You know, he became extremely controlling and according to the women, alleged, became very controlling of his sex life and um, would tell them what to do, how to do it, would narrate everything that they that he wanted them to do like a director making a movie. And in fact, he recorded most of his sexual encounters, you know, on videotape as well. So, yes, the, the, the bigger theme of Surviving R. Kelly is... These are cycles of abuse. Mm-hmm. It's not just what I what I don't want anyone to walk away from is to think, oh, men are bad, women are good, or this man is bad, these women are good. You know, I don't want any black and white thinking. No one's bad, no one's good. We're all human. Mm-hmm. We're all born good. And if we end up doing bad things, it's because we have been mistreated. Right. And the only way we can cope with our mistreatment and our abuse is through certain dysfunctional acts. So R. Kelly was a victim of severe, severe sexual abuse and emotional neglect. And that cycle of abuse continued. Now, not all men who are victims of sexual abuse become perpetrators. Some do, some don't. Some become victims themselves. You know, others become addicts. Mm-hmm. Others become alcoholics. I mean, we all cope differently. Right. But, but yes, we made it a huge point to show that he was a victim as well. And if what these women are saying is true, becoming a perpetrator, having to have this level of control over women in order to feel safe, in order to feel sexually potent would be a necessity mm-hmm. taking into account the level of, of a non-control he had while he was growing up. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And the fact, if we go back to what you said just a little bit ago, that he kept the office people away from the engineer people and everybody yeah, yeah. had to be in their own separate corner. That is yeah. a master manipulator. Who knows yeah. that you can't have two separate departments talking to each other because they'll compare notes and then there could be trouble. And I am uh, veering way off course here. We're talking with with uh, sure. Sudi Kosrapour, and Sudi was one of the uh, showrunners and co-executive producer on Surviving R. Kelly Part 2, The Reckoning. And Sudi, you worked directly with some of his victims, and uh, if you missed that program, everyone, I'm sure you can find it either on Lifetime, on their channel, on the internet, find it because you're you're you'll feel like you've been punched in the gut it is so uh, it's so emotional and it's something everybody should see because r kelly's getting a lot of publicity because he's famous you have to wonder how many r kelly's are out there that aren't famous that are doing this and there are signs and there are things that we can do as just normal everyday people if we see these signs coming from young women who might be in the same type of situation but let's talk about the victims on R. Kelly Part 2, The Reckoning. Tell us about the victims and how you went about getting them to talk and to open up so much. Yes. It, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. The, I, I did not, I was not the showrunner of Part 1. Mm-hmm. So there was, you know, the, it, it's, 
in some ways it was harder to get the survivors to talk in part two than in part one. Mm -hmm. In part one, there was kind of a mass movement. Me Too had just started. People were starting to tell their stories and everyone wanted to get their stories out. They wanted to finally be heard after decades and decades and decades of reporting on R. Kelly, but no one was listening. Jim DeRogatis, who wrote the brilliant book Soulless, uh, about R. Kelly. He'd been reporting on R. Kelly for 19 years. There had been case after case after case brought against R. Kelly that was reported in the news and then promptly forgotten. So these women had wanted to tell their stories. Many of them had wanted to tell their stories, but there wasn't an audience because nobody cared. He mm -hmm. was a celebrity. People loved him. People don't want to hear anything bad about their heroes. And he was a poor black boy from the south side of Chicago who had made good. So mm -hmm. he made his community proud. Right. You know, they, they, His music was played at every single wedding, at every outdoor barbecue. Nobody wanted to hear anything bad about their hometown hero or just, you know, a, a black man made good. He had crawled out of a, the, the ghetto on the south side of Chicago and become a multimillionaire and a, and a multi-platinum recording artist. So people turned a blind eye. People did not listen. So, so finally... In part one, you know, um, there had been enough groundswell with Jim DeRogatis' reporting for 19 years, and then the Harvey Weinstein case had sparked interest in the Me Too movement, and Mutar Kelly started up. And, and so these women were kind of riding a wave of exaltation that someone is finally listening to me in my story. Mm -hmm. So they were very open to speaking. And then once surviving R. Kelly aired, they were stunned at the amount of attention they got. A lot of positive attention, which was good, right. intimidating, but good, mm -hmm. but they got a lot of negative attention as well, because the African-American community is extremely divided mm -hmm. in whether they believe that R. Kelly did all of the things he's alleged to do, or if, or if he didn't. As I said, there are a lot of R. Kelly supporters, and they love his music. They grew up with his music. They're proud that, that, that a man with, for, who came from so little had made so much of his life, and they didn't want to believe this was true. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people did, and a lot of people were very angry at him and, and, and thought it was time for him to, to get his due. So a lot, But a lot of the people who still supported R. Kelly were vicious towards the survivors. Mm -hmm. They slandered them on social media, said unspeakable things. A lot of them, as well as parents of the survivors and of the two girls who were still living with him when surviving R. Kelly, one came out, started getting death threats. Okay. You know, there were people who, there was one girl, Geronda Pace, she was threatened in a mall while she mm -hmm. was with her children. She had to run out with her children out the back door of the mall to avoid being beaten up by this group of girls. You know, there was another woman um, who had somebody come to her place of work and threaten her. I mean, that scared her to death. She had to escape and leave and took some time off. She was so scared for herself. So awful. Awful. when we, we decided to do an R. Kelly Part 2, which was not in the original plan, but because all these women had suffered so much backlash and so much legal action had been taken against R. Kelly... The network decided, well, we, we can't just let this go. We, we, mm -hmm. we thought the chapter was closed, but the chapter is just beginning. A new chapter has just begun. Right. Um, we have to do a part two. And so when I came on, 
I actually had a much harder time convincing even the survivors that had done part one to do a part two because they had been so scared mm -hmm. by the negative backlash they had gotten from the African-American community. So it was it was difficult to earn their trust. And uh, and I talked to them, and we, we talked at length, and I, and I said to them all, look, this is your decision. If you feel that your life is in danger, I don't you know, do not do this. Right. You know, sure. I, you know, your life is far more important than than any documentary. Mm -hmm. The last thing I want to do to a woman who's been traumatized her entire life is to re-traumatize her. So decide, you know, you make a decision. And through repeated, repeated conversations with me, with every single one of the survivors, as well as the parents, we weighed the balance of what good this can do for, for letting people know, talking about the experience they've had since surviving R. Kelly and mm -hmm. the backlash and how they're feeling about the charges that have come up. Weigh that, weigh the good that it can do to the society as a whole versus the potential negative backlash you may get. Weigh those and make a personal decision. But I did not in any way pressure anyone because this is a, this is a serious matter when you – your life is being threatened. Your children's lives are being threatened. You know, mm -hmm. you, you, that's your that's your family's decision to make. Sudi, I'm so glad you're speaking out because everybody seems to have just a general opinion of, oh, these people that make these documentaries or, uh, you know, the the shows that we have now, they're they're heartless. They just mm -hmm. try and get the the worst possible, uh, you know, shot and the the most impossible type situation and make everybody look bad. But you're really putting a face and a heart to the women and men, especially who have worked on both documentaries about R. Kelly. So thank you for being so so honest and letting us know, kind of peek inside your life of putting this together. It sounded like it probably took an emotional toll on you, too. It did. It did. You can. It did on everybody who worked on this show. We, yeah, there is a there is a prevailing thought that people in television are, you know, slimy, heartless people. Mm -hmm. That, you know, that is not true of any of the shows I've worked on. I work on psychologically difficult shows. You know, I work on shows where the people who want to do those shows are the people who want to make a difference in the world. Mm -hmm. They're the people who who don't you know, who, who don't want to use and abuse. They're the people who want who went into this profession to not only educate but to make people's lives better. And I always approach all the shows I do, and especially Surviving R. Kelly, with the, with the intention that how can I make this I, – I, well, at the very least, I want to leave your life the same. Hopefully I can make your life better. Mm -hmm. um, but if, there's, if in any way being on this show is going to hurt you or your family in any way, I'm not going to. I'm not going to participate in that, and I will, I will beg you not to participate in it. E even if it will make me look good, I don't want to look good at the expense of somebody's life. Right. I have my perspective. Mm -hmm. you know. And also, I was very careful. Like, these women, these were very brave women. Um, especially after seeing what they went through in Surviving R. Kelly Part 1, mm -hmm. to come back for Part 2, knowing what they were up against. 
Um, and for the new women who came forward, they were extremely brave. Several of them had signed non-disclosure agreements and knew that by speaking out, they were breaking those and could be sued by R. Kelly and his team. Mm-hmm. And they just and, and they have they don't have money. These are not people who are rich. And they took the chance of doing that for a multitude of reasons. Number one, because it was the right thing to do. Number two, because their silence was eating away at them inside. Even though several people, they signed NDAs and they got, um, they got money in a civil lawsuit, they, had, they never wanted the money to begin with. Mm-hmm. All of them had tried to sue in criminal court first to get justice. That's what they wanted, to soothe their soul, because they had felt so betrayed by someone they had loved, someone they had trusted. They felt so shamed and shocked and pained. They were in such tremendous turmoil that they wanted, they wanted peace, and they felt that if they could sue in criminal court and at least see the man who had hurt them gain some justice and possibly put a stop to his behavior, that that could that could calm their 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 soul in some way. They could that could ease their trauma in some way. And they were denied time and time again of those criminal cases. They mm-hmm. were they were denied justice, and so they had no choice but to go to civil civil court. And they won settlements and they had NDAs, but. All of their settlements, every single one I talked to, it felt like blood money. They got it. Not only did they not feel better, they felt worse. Really? Like, Geronda Pace gave all the money away. She started buying, you know, toys and clothes for kids in need and giving Mm -hmm. it away to charity. I mean, people just started giving it away. It felt like this was a stain on them, this money they had gotten. And they felt so bad about it that they said, to hell with it. I'm breaking my non-disclosure. I don't care if he sues me. I don't care if he takes everything I have. Mm -hmm. I am living with this turmoil inside of me, and I have to get it out. And, and I have to speak up. Otherwise, it will eat me alive. And that's why they spoke up. I have nothing but the utmost respect for those women. And I'm hoping now that others who perhaps questioned these women now after listening to you will understand that they are being truthful. And this is uh, just gut-wrenching, like I've said earlier, and very, very difficult for them to do. Did you find anything that really surprised you during the filming? Wow. Uh a lot of things surprised me tremendously. You know, I'm, I've done, as, you, as, as I mentioned before, I have done a lot of documentaries dealing with everything from substance abuse disorders to incarceration. Um, I've, I've spoken to all sorts of people in all sorts of different situations. What, what I was most surprised at... Um, what I was most surprised at was the disproportionate amount of sexual abuse and incest is going on in our ur- in our urban black neighborhoods. Oh, wow. I okay. was not aware, mm-hmm. and and you know, shame on me, but I'd never done a documentary. I had actually worked in African-American communities, but with men who'd been incarcerated. Mm -hmm. I literally had never done a documentary with African-American women in low-income urban situations before, and I was shocked when I started doing the research. The tremendous extent of sexual abuse that had gone on and incest that had gone on and the entire culture of silence that that 
that goes on in those communities. Every single one of our survivors, nearly every single one with the exception of one, had been sexually assaulted throughout their childhoods. Oh, dear God. So by the time they got to R. Kelly, if, again, I say if what they say is true and Mm -hmm. everything is alleged until, of course, he goes to court, this felt familiar to them. You know, it didn't Mm -hmm. feel good. It felt painful, but it felt familiar to them. And this is the sad thing. As Geronda Pace said, she was not only sexually abused throughout her childhood, her mother didn't believe her at all. Her mother blamed everything on her. Her, She was severely neglected. So when she went to R. Kelly's house and started living with him, at least he showed her some kindness in the beginning. Mm-hmm. He showed her some love in the beginning. He talked about her molestation. They shared stories about their sexual abuse. And he would give her food to eat. He would ask if she had eaten. And what, what is one of the most heartbreaking, heartbreaking sound bites is she said, you know, at least when Robert wasn't starving me, he was asking me if I had eaten. In my entire life, my mother never asked me if I had eaten. Oh, oh, no. Ugh. Right. So I was, get, I mean, the, 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 the subtext was I was getting more love in an abusive relationship with R. Kelly than I had ever gotten in my family of origin. And this is a peek inside to those families that you were just shocked when you, when you saw all of this going on. I was shocked. And, I, and, and the one thing I also learned is how they're taught at a very young age do not speak against the black men in our community. Mm-hmm. Our community, for hundreds of years, as we know, um, has suffered at the hands of the white establishment. They have been accused of crimes they haven't committed. They have been racially profiled. Black men have been brought down time and time again unjustly. Yes, absolutely. And so so if, if the, 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 the white majority is bringing down our black men, certainly our black women shouldn't be doing the same. Mm-hmm. Keep your mouth shut. Don't you bring down our black men, too. So here we have black women in these communities being abused, traumatized, severely traumatized, and they can't talk about it. They can't scream about it. They can't get any validation or support. And people in school know that's going on. People at Kenwood Academy, where he went to school and where he later came back to pick up young 14, 13, 14, 15-year-old girls, the teachers knew what was going on. They saw him cruising Kenwood Academy. They saw him cruising McDonald's looking for young girls. The teachers at that school are mandated reporters. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to report that kind of activity. And let's go back even further to the main theme, and I know we're, we're, we're wrapping it up, but R. Kelly, the his music teacher knew what was going on because at age, you know, 13, 12, 13, 14, he was writing sexually explicit lyrics. She admitted she knew what was going on. Back then in the 70s and 80s, those teachers were mandated reporters, too. They are mandated by the government to report suspicion of sexual abuse. So had R. Kelly's abuse been reported when he was 12, 13, 14, 
you and I probably wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Right. So the bigger theme, which I want to leave everyone with, it's not just about R. Kelly bad, women good. Let's not ever get black and white. Mm -hmm. This is about where are we as a society where we're allowing sexual abuse to continue with men as well as women. Why did nobody stop the abuse that was happening to R. Kelly and get him the help that he needed mm -hmm. as a victimized child? And then why didn't then subsequently people step in, whether it be parents, the, the urban community, or the teachers and help those younger women when they were being abused. Why is nobody noticing? Why is nobody reporting? Why aren't we stopping it early on and keeping these cycles of abuse from continuing? That's Absolutely. The, that's the big theme. That's what I want the audience to leave surviving R. Kelly thinking. We have a bigger problem than R. Kelly or Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein or Bill Cosby or any of those people. We have a societal problem that we are not stopping the cycles of abuse early enough before they continue to perpetuate Absolutely. From generation to generation. Sudi, yeah. you hit one of my soapbox issues. You and I could talk about this forever and ever, and this podcast would never end, I swear. But <laughs> we do have to wrap it up just a little bit. And what I'd like to do is leave everybody with a positive note on sure. this, okay? What was the most rewarding part of this whole experience and why? That's easy. Well, a couple of things. The no, the, the one rewarding, the most rewarding part was meeting these women. Mm -hmm. I fell in love with these women, and I was stunned and heartened by how resilient most of these women have been to have suffered the levels of abuse in their families as young children, to have gone through what they went through with R. Kelly, um, and to have come out the other side, getting a lot of them are getting themselves help. We offered therapy to all of them. Some are taking, getting, making use of it. Some are going in their own communities and getting therapy. Mm -hmm. And they are a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them are coming through remarkably stronger, wiser, healthier than ever. And now they're doing advocacy work to help other young girls not go through what they went through, to have the courage to speak up and report the abuse at age 10, 11, 12, 13, before it continues. And they end up marrying a man who is abusive, and right. the cycle continues mm -hmm. on and on. For example, the two of the new, um, the, the new women who spoke up, Tiffany Hawkins, she was the first one. Um, who had ever filed charges against R. Kelly, you know, she she suffered tremendously. She tried to commit suicide. She was tremendously traumatized by the situation. She managed to to not only survive but to thrive. She put herself through college with as a single mother, finished college, got her master's degree, and is an executive in the medical field right now. Lenita Carter, who was his hair braider, had no education, talked about resilience, sexually abused throughout her childhood. She had no one to advocate for her. At 14, she ran away from home, ran to another city, put herself at age 14 in the foster care system herself. Amazing. That is amazing. And, right. And tried to make a living as a hair braider, was assaulted allegedly by R. Kelly, and somehow managed, again, as a single mother, not only put herself through college, be an RN, 
She is now a full nurse and getting her. her master's degree currently. Oh, is God, married with six children, living a great life. The resiliency. So the the positive note is hearing the the the, the sad part is is finding out how much sexual abuse goes on at such a young age in this country, especially in the urban black communities with women of color. Mm -hmm. the, the positive note is how many of these women find an inner strength within themselves to triumph over it and not just survive, but to thrive. And, and these women will stay in my heart forever. I love them as though they are sisters. They will always be in my heart and they will always be in, the, in, in my life. I've told every single one of them, I am here for you for the rest of our lives. You call on me anytime you want and I will be there for you. They are, they are my sisters. That's how I feel now. Sudi Cost Report, it just shows how incredibly uh, caring and compassionate you are to help the victims, the alleged victims in R. Kelly's case, and your your thoughts on the wider problems, right spot on. I'm going to have you on again and again and again and again, whether you like it or not. You might have to change your number, but uh, I found a, a almost a kindred spirit here of somebody that we, you and I can talk back and forth about this because we have a lot of cases on Web Sleuths that fit that exact exact uh, description that you were talking about. Get to the abuse and the abuser early and change the world. And that's what needs to happen. So, Sudi Cross Report, thank you so, so much for joining us today on WebSource Radio Podcast. You are an angel on earth. Thank you very much. Thank you. This was a total pleasure. Until we meet again, my darling true crime angels, Trisha Griffith saying so long. It's WebSource Radio Podcast and we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye now. Don't forget, patreon.com if you want to support Web Sleuths. Five bucks a month. Great way to listen for extra content. Bye-bye.